Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome to episode two. In this podcast, we are asking the question, what is an investment bank and why the heck do you want to work at one? Uh, In case you missed our first episode, we are two women who both worked on Wall Street and have now made it our mission to pull back the curtain on the entire world of the financial services industry and to make it accessible to everyone. We've been utterly humbled by the outpouring of love and support we have had since we launched, and we are just so grateful to you guys. We never would have been able to turn this passion project into a reality without the just unbelievable support from our friends, our family, and everyone in this community that we are just getting to know as we go along. Yeah. And I mean, we have been so surprised to hear from friends and family who are already established in their careers and who therefore we didn't envision actually being interested in these topics and saying that they're tuning in, hoping to learn a little bit about the industry or finance concepts. And so if that is you and your goal is just to learn about the industry and not necessarily to start a career here per se. We do hope you stick around. Uh, There is still a place for you here. Yes. And I feel like we have such an obligation now to our listeners to give them as much great content as possible. We're so pumped up to record like ASAP, but man, (laughs) it is hard, especially Kristen, when you don't even have a desk. Uh, I know. So for those of you guys who don't know me, I have been living in a two-bedroom, two-bathroom New York City apartment with three children under five for way too long now. Uh, You know, a two-bedroom apartment is fine when you have zero or one kid. It's tight with two, but my third is 10 months old and we are completely out of room. My three kids, they're literally shoved in a room together. Now, (laughs) throw in a nanny and two people working from home. And it's not exactly a good recipe for working or, I don't know, recording a podcast. <laughs> I uh, actually, I had to kick my husband out of our sad little office setup in our bedroom to record today. Uh, but we are in the final months before we officially move from New York City after 17 years to Boston, which does feel a little bit like homecoming because it's where Jen and I grew up. But as you can imagine, the prospect of getting an actual office in a house with tons of space is going to be life-changing. 
Well, you've been nothing short of amazing at managing to keep the baby screams to a minimum in the background. (laughs) I'm I'm super impressed. And guys, if you do hear stuff like that in the background, please be patient with us. We are doing the best that we can. Hopefully you're, you know, getting to know us a little bit better. And the reality is we we are both moms. Um, Okay. So last episode, we tried to give you guys an overview of what we hope to accomplish on this podcast. And today... We're going to try to tackle explaining the most basic concepts from the beginning. So let's let's dive right in. Today we want to answer the question, what is an investment bank? Yeah, what it, what is an investment bank? And there has never been a better time to talk about this because if you're anything like us, you've probably been glued to the edge of your seats watching the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The, you know, there's been these like knock-on effects to regional banks and there was, you know, an acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS and also like maybe you're not and that is also totally fine. <laughs> but uh yeah, so I touched on this briefly in the last episode and and actually joked that when I told my parents I wanted to interview for a job at a bank that they probably thought I was going to be a bank teller, which is, by the way, not entirely true. So mom and dad, I am setting the record straight. Um, But it is a common mistake. And that brings up a very important distinction. There are different types of banks. There are commercial banks and there are investment banks. And oftentimes the two coexist within the same company. Yeah. I mean, you guys have probably heard of, or maybe you bank with Bank of America or Citi or JP Morgan Chase. And what you may not know is that some banks have both commercial banking and investment banking arms, while other banks have only one or the other. Like Wells Fargo, for example, was historically pretty much exclusively a commercial bank. But then in the 2008 financial crisis, when Wachovia, which was really only an investment bank, was going under... Wells Fargo acquired them and then found themselves with both a gigantic commercial bank and now a robust investment banking arm. And this happened to a lot of banks back then, right? Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch, Barclays bought Lehman. And, you know, conversely, banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, which were two historically investment banks only, they now have limited commercial operations. Like Goldman Sachs has their Apple credit card, I think. Ooh, Apple credit card. We need to look into that. I, I'm i like a huge points person. So anyway, <laughs> adding that to our list. But uh, okay, so back on topic. A commercial bank is what you think of as just a bank with a capital B. So it's where regular people like you and me, we go and we deposit money and we borrow money. And so this might, you know, conjure up these childhood images that you have of a bank, right? So like think of a vault or think of a bank teller or you know, I mean, a mortgage, also, right? You know, coming from a real estate background, yeah, think of where you might go to get a mortgage. And a mortgage, if that's something you're not familiar with, is money you might borrow from a bank or another lending institution to help you buy a house. Yeah, exactly. We uh, are actually closing on our loan, so our mortgage, in the next 10 days because we are buying a house. So I love that example. But similarly, if you wanted to take out a small business loan, you would go to a commercial bank. And this, by the way, is a small business loan, right? So this is not where Amazon or Apple would go if they need to borrow money. They go to an investment bank, which more on that in in just a moment. Um, So a commercial bank, they're going to take deposits. So that means they're taking the money that you and I give them if we don't want to keep cash under our mattress. And then they turn around and they make loans out the other side, right? So they lend that money to somebody else. 
they make money because what they pay you and me and interest on our deposits is much less than what they charge when they lend money back out. And so we touched earlier on some of the issues with SVB and I mean, that's been all over the news. And this is just a perfect example to illustrate sort of the both sides of a depository institution. So SVB was a bank that had all of these deposits from companies and individuals, and then they took that money and they invested it. And because the value of their investments dropped so significantly, so it literally dropped by $2 billion, the depositors freaked out and they pulled out all of their money at the exact same time. That money was tied up in those bad investments. And this is called a run on the bank. And it's actually similar to during COVID. So back in 2020, remember when everyone decided that like we all needed massive stockpiles of toilet paper and we needed it now. (laughs) So we all tried to buy toilet paper at the exact same time. And there just was not enough for everyone. It's the exact same idea with a bank. So when the value of their investments collapsed, there was just not enough money for everyone to pull their money out at the same time. And that's just one example that we're going to get to over the course of this podcast. We're going to get to other similar periods of crises in history. If for no other reason, than Jen and I had a front row seat to the financial crisis of 2008. Oh, boy. Can't wait to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we've explained what a commercial bank is. And I promise we are now finally getting around to your initial question, which is what is an investment bank? So an investment bank is different from a commercial bank. In fact, investment banks used to legally have to be a completely separate entity from the commercial bank because people were afraid that risky decisions at the investment bank would wipe out innocent depositors. So like you and me on the commercial side. So again, what is an investment bank? Drum roll, please. It is a service-oriented business that provides advice to large corporations and gives them access to the public markets. But really, it's a two-part operation. Right. So when we are talking about Wall Street, right, Wall Street, capital W, capital S, this is typically short code for these investment banking institutions, regardless of whether or not they have commercial banks attached to them. The investment banking division is, first of all, where corporate advisory services are carried out, right? Think, for example, an acquisition, one company buying another company. You know, if you're if you're watching Succession right now, like we are, and don't worry, no spoilers here, but but think about all the machinations going on with Waystar, Royco, and the companies that they are buying or selling. The people they are making fun of so often in the show are the <laughs> investment bankers who are advising them on how much these companies or pieces of the companies are worth. Yes, exactly. Actually, there's this one scene in the new season where they're trying to negotiate the price that they should pay to buy another company. And everyone is sitting around and throwing out different dollar amounts. So they're like, eight, nine, $10 billion. And Roman says to his banker, like they get on the phone and they say, but is it actually worth that? And the banker replies, well, it's worth what the top bidder is willing to pay for it. To which Roman's like, okay, well, (laughs) I wish I went to Harvard Business School like you did. He's going to bill us $200 million for that advice. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds just like the advice I give in my real estate career every day. House is only (laughs) worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Um, But that's exactly right. Investment bankers provide advice to these companies. And for that service, they charge a fee. In this case, that fee is a percentage of the total deal size. So like, if the price paid for the company is $10 billion, and the banker's fee is $200 million, that's a 2% fee. 
Well done, Jen. I see you could do math. <laughs> uh, I actually thought I was going to need to break out my calculator. I never want to do math on the fly on this podcast again. Um, <laughs> the second half of what, remember we said it's a two-part institution, right? So the second half of what an investment bank does is help institutions. And by institutions, we mean, so not only the corporations we were talking about earlier, like Amazon or Apple, but also when we say institutions, we might also mean things like investment managers, pension funds, insurance companies. We are going to get into all of these types of institutions as we go, we promise. But it gives them access to the financial markets. And when I say access to the financial markets, I mean helping them raise money and buy or sell things that we call securities. Exactly. So yes, the investment bank is divided into these two primary arms. So the investment banking division, which we usually abbreviate as IBD, and the sales and trading arm. So the investment banking division, like we said, you have these bankers and they're advising companies on strategic decisions in exchange for a fee. In the sales and trading arm, the bank helps corporations and other institutions buy and sell things, and they make money in a much more complex and nuanced way that we're going to get into in another episode, I promise. Um, In fact, we're going to have a whole episode devoted to this, but this is the arm of the bank where the bank itself is actually taking risk to facilitate client transactions. Yes. And and to be clear, Wall Street, again, capital W, capital S, as a whole is more than just investment banks. These institutions that we are talking about as the clients of the investment bank are oftentimes part and parcel of what we are referring to when we say Wall Street. You know, if you've ever heard of asset managers or hedge funds, right? Think of the show Billions or private equity firms, insurance companies, pension funds. These are all tied to Wall Street and we will talk about them as well. But to start, we're going to be talking about the investment banking division and the sales and trading divisions within a bank. Yeah, we so we want to speak from our personal experience first. And since both of our careers were at the banks, I mean, I spent the majority of my glorious three years of my banking career uh, within the investment banking division, uh, although I then spent the next 13 years teaching investment bankers how to do their job. So I will be tackling most of the content on the IBD side. <laughs> and, you know, before I had my face on the side of a bus as a real estate agent, I spent the majority of my career in the sales and trading arm of the bank. So I think that's why I'm a little bit better suited to speak to that side of the firm. Um, okay, so now that we finally established what an investment bank is, <laughs> finally, after 15 minutes, uh, why does someone want to work there? I mean, look, I'm going to just come right out and say it. Uh, people can make a lot of money in these in these jobs. And you'd have to be living under a rock to not have some knowledge of that. And so let's face it, jobs in Wall Street have historically been pretty high paying, especially for new people starting in their careers, you know, especially when you compare that to an entry level position in another industry. Absolutely. I mean, knowing virtually nothing about the industry before I started in it, I was definitely aware that it was a path to higher compensation than I was ever going to make in like my self-styled role as the great American author of essays about club sandwiches, right? Can you write it? I want to read that. (laughs) (laughs) When you and I were first starting out now, so compensation, it seemed amazing. I remember what you were paid for your internship relative to what I was making doing research or like working for a biotech company. It, It was almost like two to three times higher. Right, right, right. No, my, my summer internship probably paid 
like $10,000. And my base salary when I was working was, I think, fifty-five dollars or $65,000. I mean, granted, the cost of living in New York City is astronomical. And, and it was even then. But this was way more money than I had ever envisioned myself making at the time. And, and just, just to kind of break this down a little bit, you know, base salary is what you get paid contractually, regardless of how you perform in that particular year. And most banks operate on a performance-based compensation system, meaning if you do well, you get an additional payment at the end of the year that is a true up to the market rate for your job for someone who's you know performing at your tier of competence. I guess the best way to explain this is, if you're one of the best first-year analysts, your bonus that year, that performance-based compensation, might double your total compensation for the year. A lot of people don't understand how these bonuses work. I actually think the term bonus is a misnomer. I mean, especially in years when banks are plagued by scandal, right? So again, we'll do a bit of a deep dive into that compensation structure later. Um, But I'd be curious, I mean, Kristen, what is the pay like now across the street? Okay, so I researched this and what we were paid, Jen, it seems like nothing relative to the salaries now, although in fairness, you know, inflation. But okay, so for an analyst, so someone who either, you know, just graduated or is two or three years out from college, your all in compensation is about one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Now that varies by yeah whether you are in your first, second, third year, what your tier is geographically, where you work, but that's ballpark. And it's also, as you said before, you know it's split between base and bonus. But even the base salary has gone up, and that is now up to a hundred to one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars versus. Wow. 15 years ago, it was 55 to like 60. And then for an associate, so this is someone who either has gotten promoted, usually two to three years after they started as an analyst, or someone who is just coming out of business school, they're all in compensation, Jen. It's literally up to half a million dollars. Oh my God. Of which, yeah, the base salary is 175 to 275,000 ish dollars. Now, it is worth noting. Bonuses and, you know, therefore all in compensation will fluctuate with the markets. And so this past year was not uh, considered to be a great year. And all signs point to the fact that 2023 probably won't be a great year as well, but uh, not a good year to the average person. Like that is still really, really, really good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Agreed. Uh, Okay. So aside from just, I want to make money. What are some of the other reasons that people would get into this industry? Or rather, you know, Kristen, why did you want to get into this industry? Yeah, so I'm going to start with just like people in general, because they can have tons of different reasons for being attracted to the banking industry, ranging from lifestyle, right, to the excitement of working on huge deals that are front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, to the fact that there are so many different types of roles, you'll probably find something that matches your skills and your interests. So, but I'm going to now address the question of like, what about me? So let's back up even further. So before I explain what got me into the industry, uh, I want to show you just how convoluted my path to the street was. So I studied biomedical and mechanical engineering in undergrad, neither of which obviously have any relation whatsoever to finance. But this was because I was innately good at math and science. And being the daughter of an engineer and a science teacher, uh, you know, I was kind of guided toward that field of study. And I actually started off thinking I was going to go into the medical field, like maybe be a doctor. That is until I did an internship at a hospital in an orthopedic research lab. This was a summer after my sophomore 
sophomore year. And I realized that like cadavers and, and blood, they, they really freaked me out. And so <laughs> I figured out that was probably not for me. Um, as someone who has seen 10,000 cumulative hours of Grey's Anatomy, I can confirm that I too have zero interest in the medical <laughs> field. I cannot believe you came so close to being a doctor. Well, Jen, I mean, close here, that, that is a very relative term. It okay, fair not that close. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, I mean, you're so right. Both of our paths were, were similarly convoluted starting in college. So I was good at math, but I didn't love it and I wasn't passionate about it. You know, I thought I actually wanted to be an astrophysics major at one point because I am a huge sci-fi and fantasy nerd and I've been a lifelong Trekkie. Jen, I forgot that you were so into that like back in the day. Um, I, I do <laughs> back remember. Back in the day, I, I still am. Sorry, you still are. It's funny because I, I go to you for like all of my favorite entertainment wrecks. I feel like you were the person who taught me Harry Potter or like forced me to watch like Scream, one of my favorite movies. But I don't know, this stuff, the, the Star Trek never really appeared to me. Yeah, that's fair. It's not for everyone. Uh, but when I actually showed up for Astro 101 in my dream of becoming an astrophysics major, um, but <laughs> I realized it wasn't going to be all fun and games looking at cool pictures of galaxies, right? It was just a lot of really hard, really dry math. Um, sorry, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I love your podcast, Star Talk, but I was not cut out to be in the weeds. So instead, I decided to major in da 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 my native language of English. <laughs> I was honestly just way more interested in doing what came easily and naturally than pushing myself academically, which makes it sound like such a waste now when I think about it in retrospect, right? I, I wish I could go back and do college all over again, especially from an academic standpoint. Oh my God. Yes. I would, I would kill to go back and do, do college again. Yeah. But anyway, so my sophomore year, I joined this on-campus organization called Business Today. Literally not because I was interested in business, guys, but because I had a few friends in the organization and I had gone to one of their parties. <laughs> they threw really good parties. Um, mm -hmm. But Business Today was, at the time, the largest student-run organization in the country. And we ran a magazine related to, you know, you guessed it, business. Um, and we <laughs> held an international conference every year where we invited students from all over the world to come and listen and meet with leaders from Fortune 500 companies. So I spent hours every week in college cold calling C-level executives from these companies and asking them to participate. And that was really my like first ever job. Wait, hold on, Jen. Sorry, not to like give you shit here, but um, that was your first job was halfway through college. I've had jobs yeah. I, my whole life. I mean, I was a barista, which by the way, we have an Instagram post. I think it was our second one. We look like Starbucks baristas, but yeah, which I was a, a great barista. thing. I, green is my favorite color. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. But you color. were a barista, right? At that Starbucks where we used to hang out with Kate Berman and get frappuccinos because we thought we were in the cast of Clueless in 1996. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I was very, very fortunate growing up. And as a result, I was very naive, right? This was my first job. Um, and it just so happened to be in something salesy, meaning cold calling, making a pitch, you know, like real old fashioned sales stuff. I worked for Business Today the summer after my sophomore year, traveling around the country to then meet with these executives to kind of bring them on board. And I got paid a commission, meaning a percentage of the money that I raised for the organization went to me as compensation for doing the work to raise it. And by the way, despite the fact that I broke my foot the first week and was literally hobbling into these C-suite meetings and, and the fact that my car got totaled when I got hit by a crazy driver running a red light, I actually loved this experience. And I realized that I had a talent and a passion for sales. 
So, you know, my junior year in college, when all my friends were applying for their internships at the banks, you know, my ears actually kind of perked up and I was now kind of interested in business, right? And I'd figured out that I was decent at sales. But what's, what's embarrassing about all this though, is that I had no knowledge of anything finance related, despite the fact that my dad had worked in finance my whole life. I really never paid attention to the stuff he was talking about and I never understood it. And honestly, I think this is so much of why we are doing this podcast in the first place, by the way. I mean, here I was, I was literally the daughter of someone who was living and breathing this stuff all day, but it was so jargonized and it was so inaccessible to me to understand. I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about it. So, you know, you guys know how it is, right? You can be around something your whole life and just never have it click until the right moment. So when I was asking my friends what they were applying for, when they were applying for their summer internships at the bank, they explained it as an internship where you'd get paid to learn the skills you needed on the job. So you could be doing that and then all the while living in New York for a summer and having a blast. So I figured, you know, what did I have to lose, right? I give it a shot and, and maybe my talent for sales would somehow translate into skills for the job itself. Yeah. And that's actually where I came in because I came to visit you that one summer and I saw mm-hmm. what you were doing and I was just like, well, wait a minute, like this exists. Someone is willing to pay you to learn. And it's so funny because you said you wish you could do college all over again. I mean, to me, that is how I saw the Wall Street internship and the training process, right? You're literally getting paid to learn a new skill. And I, I love learning. I mean, we are such nerds if you guys are listening. Uh, by yeah, the way, for, for young kids out there, like it is cool to be smart. But, you know, if you do want to get a sense for just how nerdy we were, check out our other Instagram post. My mom found this ancient photo of us where, uh, Jen, you're wearing your trademark giant glasses and yes, apparently ma'am. we're knitting. But, so <laughs> The one and me. only time I've ever held knitting needles in my hand, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so back to the internship. So despite the fact that I had no knowledge of finance, it, it seemed like an industry that fit well with my love of math and had the added bonus of no dead bodies. Huge, huge bonus. Fewer dead bodies, mm-hmm. definitely. More yes. attractive lifestyle. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, the fact that you would have this chance to learn on the job while getting paid was very attractive to me because I had just spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars paying to learn. So it's almost like, well, wait a second. Hold on. You, you're paying me now? Like, like what? I also felt like New York, it just felt like almost an extension of college. So most of my best friends from college were all on paths that were taking them there. And so getting a job on Wall Street was okay. Now, now I can actually afford to live in this, in this great, amazing city. Uh, plus I saw what you had with your summer internship and it just seemed like another freshman week all over again in only this time, the real world. So you're Mm -hmm. meeting all of these new friends in your analyst class and you're making connections and you're learning at the same time. And I was like, I want to do that myself. And so when I finally did start my career, turns out that was my favorite part of the whole process, the training aspect, right? Those first couple of weeks on the job, I, I, I enjoyed it so much that I ultimately ended up becoming a teacher so I could be part of that process for everyone who is uh, entering and coming into the industry. Yeah. So you guys see how convoluted it can be, right? I mean, neither of us had a straight line path into the industry. And I mean, listen, if we're going to sum it all up, right? Okay. A, neither of us got into the industry because of the subject matter or the material that we'd be taking on in the day-to-day job, right? Uh, But rather, you know, because of the structure of the programs for onboarding new hires, that's what you really liked. 
you know, the mm-hmm. opportunity to learn new skills. I mean, definitely the opportunity to make money and live in New York City in something other than a cardboard box because it's so expensive to live there. And mm-hmm. and really it was, you know, I think the chance to be part of something very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I I do think had we known what we know now just about what people actually do at these banks, I think we might have done it a little differently. Uh, Yeah, I mean, evidenced by the fact that both you and I switched desks at least one time in our career. I mean, I switched desks four times and that was in three years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that, that has to be a record. Yes. So again, that is what we are here to help you with, right? So we want to expedite the learning process. So if you are listening to this, when you think about why you might want to get a job in the financial services industry, there is way more to it than just making money early on in your career and meeting new people and living in New York City. Understanding what each of those divisions do will hopefully help you to drill down into whether or not, you know, the day-to-day of a particular role at a bank might jive with your innate interest and talents. And so we're really going to dig into the nitty-gritty and the specifics in the episodes to come. Right. I mean, having an understanding of how these things actually work in this industry can help you be as strategic as possible in your approach to starting your career, right? You want to focus your efforts and sync them up with who you are, your passions, and your personality. Yeah. And and look, I mean, here's another example. So neither of us had any idea about what were the exit opportunities from the bank itself when we started out in our careers. Um, And so, you know, for for some of you, maybe you have heard about, you know, these like fancy private equity funds or hedge funds. I had no idea what those were as a junior in college. And, Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I don't think I even knew what they were when I was fully employed in my first couple of years at the bank. Now, if you had known what those exit opportunities from banking were. Are you saying you might have structured your career differently? I mean, possibly, although I'm not going to lie, I am pretty happy being a teacher. Uh, Uh But I do wish that it had at least been on my radar from the beginning. So it could have at least considered it as an option. And so for those of you who don't know, many people look at a career in investment banking as a stepping stone towards the ultimate goal of working on the coveted buy side. So those are the institutions we touched on earlier. So they're the, the people who are the clients, right? They are the clients of the bank itself. And some examples of private equity firms. So Blackstone or KKR, uh, some examples of hedge funds include like Citadel or Bridgewater. So these are people that control a large pile of money and use that money to either buy entire companies or to invest in securities. And this is way oversimplified, but the bottom line is that these jobs tend to be some of the highest paid jobs in the world with a very desirable lifestyle attached to them. And so if you think that this is something you are interested in long-term, that can help inform your reason or strategy for entering into a specific role at the bank. And so in fact, you might have even heard of stories of some firms, so especially private equity firms, making offers to college seniors based on the fact that they have a full-time offer at an investment bank. So they essentially have to go do two years. Yeah, they have to do their two years, but when they come out on the other side, they have that job already lined up. And so, you know, March Madness just finished up, right? So it's kind of like signing to play for a college team in, in basketball when you are just a freshman in high school. Yikes. That is crazy. That definitely wasn't the case when we were working or they weren't, they weren't after me. Let me put it that way. (laughs) 
Um, but so, okay. So what you're saying mm-hmm. is, is in this example, like having an idea of the ultimate career you want after a stint in banking can sometimes be your entire reasoning, your why, right. For getting mm-hmm. into the industry in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or conversely, you might have no idea what you want to do when you grow up. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I'm a 38 year old aspiring podcaster. <laughs> you and me both, Jen. But, but that actually really, um, this is really critical to our mission, guys. I mean, you may be coming from a background or a school or a major, whatever it is that doesn't lend itself easily to showing just how smart and capable you are for entering into a given professional field. Experience in the banking industry can become that big stamp of legitimacy on your resume to be a springboard towards anything you want to do in the future. I mean, it can be an incredibly powerful tool and and really empowering to you as an individual. Leaving your job in banking, you have a line item on your resume that makes you stand out as qualified for your next career. I mean, yeah, as, as long as your next career doesn't require some specific advanced degree. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Right. I mean, you can't show up to be a neurosurgeon and have your summer internship in high yield sales as your only credential. Right. <laughs> but you, you can work for a few years in finance and translate the skills and the knowledge and the street smarts you honed there into an extremely successful career in many, many different fields. I mean, look, I, again, I'm a real estate agent now, but I actually think I'm a better real estate agent than I would have been without that experience in banking. You just, you never know where you will be able to apply the skills that you learned and that makes them invaluable. So for a lot of you, mm-hmm. investment banking can be a great place to kind of grow up while you figure out what you ultimately want to do. So to recap, uh, you might want to start a career in banking because it interests you or, you know, it's exciting or you love finance. But for many other people, it might be as simple as you just want to make a lot of money because you need to pay off student loans or you want to achieve independence. It might be a necessary step towards your ultimate goal you have in a related industry, or it might just be an awesome place to hone your skills, learn, and, you know, grow up while you decide what it is you actually want to do, uh, which is where we both landed. Right. And again, listen, like you said, Kristen, I mean, we have listeners telling us that they're just really curious about how all this stuff actually works so they can understand what's going on in the news since Wall Street is constantly in the news. And if you are taking those lessons away from this podcast, that's absolutely awesome. Um, And I think this is teeing us up for our next episode. You know, this is a good start to what we want to hit on in more detail, which is wherever you fall on that spectrum of interest, and if you are someone who is thinking about a potential career in finance, how do you now figure out, okay, I understand what it is. Where do I want to work on Wall Street? meaning not necessarily buy side or sell side, but what kind of content is most interesting to you? What lifestyle is most compatible with yours and the lifestyle you want to have? Do you want to be in investment banking? Do you want to be in sales and trading? Do you want to be somewhere adjacent to the big divisions, but with, you know, different levels of responsibility or interaction? You know, do you want to be in capital markets, which kind of straddles both sales and trading and investment banking? Or do you want to be in something that looks very different, like private wealth management, middle and back office? Um, There's risk management, there's research, you know, there's quants. We're building all the models that everyone's using on the trading floor. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, or is your goal to get to the buy side as quickly as humanly possible? I mean, there are so many different roles that might speak to your individual temperament. Um, and, you know, we, we obviously can't get to them all, although we're going to try. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what we really hope to do in our next episode is talk in more detail about some specific roles and responsibilities. Now, just within an investment bank to start. Um, and we want to talk about what the lifestyle looks like from a day-to-day standpoint. Again, super high level in general and talk about like what kind of personality traits and skill sets and personal goals might or might not align with those roles. So you can start to think about what parts of this job might best appeal to you. Yeah. So thank you guys so, so much for listening and following along. Uh, Our next episode is going to drop later this week. And after that, we will be launching uh, a new episode weekly going forward. Thank you. Thank you. We are so grateful for you guys. Uh, We really appreciate you and uh, we hope you found this valuable. We are very excited to deliver more content for you from behind the curtain of the world of Wall Street. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 